There has to be some sever. You have to, you have to find some kind of a way to sever yourself from the rest of humanity as far as what they think of you determines your worth or what they think of you determines whether you are forgivable or not. You are not going to get an okay that is going to matter in any form from people so that you can be free. This is 100% you decide, I'm going to accept this. What Jesus did, I'm going to accept it. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Today, I'm welcoming back to the show, Serena Woods, author of Grace is for Sinners. Now, Serena has been here three different times. This is her fourth time. You can go back and hear the three-part series that we did in episodes 9, 10, and 11, where we cover childhood trauma, an affair, and how the church should respond to sin. On today's show, Serena is answering the questions that you all sent in for her. You had some good ones, so we're going to go ahead and jump in. Serena, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get right to the questions. The first question I have is in regards to all of the relationships that you had, whether it be your ex-husband and his now wife and all the people who were involved or knew about the affair. Here's the question. I would love to hear more about those relationships and if there has been any reconciliation. Uh, No, there hasn't. Okay. (laughs) Do you have anything else you want to add? I mean, you know, I've, I kind of left it to where I am open to um, whatever, like, I definitely submitted myself in, uh, I'm the one who's wrong here. Um, if there's any, like I left myself open to that. So, and it's been 14 years, there hasn't been anything. And I, I, it doesn't mean that there won't be, it just means that, uh, there's no way for me to know what's going on on the other side. I have little tiny slivers of, uh, of just hints of, Um, what's going on on the other side. And I just don't think that anybody is ready for any uh, conversation with me, which I mean, I, it's not like I am waiting, you know, it's not like my life is on hold at any point. It's, and it, it could have a lot to do with me. It could have to do with, you know, um, just stuff like this doesn't just you don't just like get over it uh, quickly. It takes a really long time and there's a journey and there there's, you know, maturity and there's a lot of stuff that takes place within the heart and within the spirit and within the understanding. And uh, so it could be that I, that, you know, God was, is keeping, keeping us apart, you know, for a specific reason so that whenever it does come back together, it's good. 
and not weird and not um, volatile or anything like that. And maybe there's never going to be a coming together and, you know, being in the same room and having any kind of conversation. Maybe it's never like if, if this would, if this would have taken place um, earlier, Mm -hmm. I would have been like, um, I'm learning so much. This is so crazy. Like what I've been through is like taught me so much. And so there wouldn't have been the gravity of, I ripped your world out from underneath you. There wouldn't have been as much of that because I was so overwhelmed with what God was teaching me. Mm. Um, and so I definitely had that first period where I was just like numb and I am, you know, where I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a productive conversation. And then after that, whenever I started learning all of the stuff and writing the book and I was just like overwhelmed with all of the purpose, there's so much purpose, but you can't tell somebody who's been hurt that there's a purpose for it. You can't tell them that like that's, that takes a different kind of a person. So I, I don't know what's going on with them, but the short answer is no. The longer answer is, you know, it's not because I haven't been open to it. You know, it's interesting because I realize the only, I I feel like what makes it okay when people tell their quote unquote affair stories is when the husband goes back to the wife and the woman is sort of out of the picture. And then the couple tells their story of like redemption and forgiveness and everything is okay. But what happened with you guys, because you married the man because you were pregnant and things were the way we were. Everybody heard part one, two, and three. And if you haven't, you need to go back and listen. And do you find that true? Like, I think that's probably yeah in people's minds. Like, there's a weird, I don't know if it's weird. Maybe it's just human, but... You know, I mean, if this was an affair story, yeah, I mean, it's, this is different. I probably should just keep my mouth shut and uh, go about my business because that's, nobody wants to hear that. But if this is a grace story and I need to tell you how dirty I was, I need to tell you how far Jesus came Mm. to come and rescue me. So I tell you that stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want you to know that about me. I don't, that's not like... And people who are in my life now don't necessarily know that about me. But when I'm telling my, uh, my story, like about like my relationship with God, when I'm talking about God, we're giving eyewitness accounts. We're called witnesses. And so I'm like, uh, raising my hand, like, yeah, I did this and, and his, and his sacrifice still saved me. Like, you know, it's sort of like that whole backward thing of like the worst, you know, almost puts God's grace on like brighter, like on a brighter display on a higher pedestal. And so it's like this question of, so do I praise God for sin? Do I No, mm-hmm. you're missing the point. Like the Bible definitely addresses that, especially like in Romans, probably Romans nine, there's a Romans nine is Excellent. But in Romans, the Bible addresses like you can talk so much about God's grace and it's almost glorifying the sin. And so that you're getting it, you're getting it backward. You're so anyway, I hope that. No, I think that's so good because honestly, like people will ask me, I just, I had a, I had, I have actually high schools, um, high schools, high schoolers email me and say like, can I ask you questions about your abortion? Cause I have to do a project <laughs> and I'm like, sure. And, um, it's, they'll say like, do you regret it? And I'm like, yes, in an earthly sense, I regret it. 
But in a spiritual, like heavenly sense, I don't because it drew me to the Lord, like closer to God in my desperation and my heartache. So it's a really interesting thing because our sin and our heartache and our longings and our all of this stuff leads us into God's arms. I call that the great reversal. And mm. I call that repentance. That is a change of mind. That is, that is a, the, the thing is the same, but the meaning is different now. Yes. Yes. That's good. And you know, it's interesting too, because <clears throat> I've read your book twice now. And obviously doing the series with you that we've done and knowing the trauma of your past and why you made some decisions that you did, it doesn't lessen sin, but it also brings to focus like why we do what we do. So I I just got done reading this book. Well, I'm almost finished with it called The Body Keeps the Score. Have you heard of that? No, that's an excellent title though. Oh my, oh my word. Uh I'm recommending it to everybody. Like, get it immediately. Like, I'm not even kidding you. Like, I'm on my phone right now. (laughs) Like, seriously, everybody listening, you all need to read this book. It will blow your mind. And it just talks about how our past traumas, the ones we remember, the ones we don't remember in our childhood, like our brains may forget or our brains may consciously be like, we're fine or blah, blah, blah. But our body remembers. So like, let's say you're abused as a child and you've moved on in your mind, but like your body will react a certain way, you know, 15, 20 years later, whatever, if someone touches you or if something brings a memory or whatever. And you're like, why is this happening? And the and studies show that what happened to you when you were traumatized, like when there's a flashback or somebody tells you that, your body literally goes into the same situation that it did. Like it feels everything it actually felt in that moment, even if it's 50 years ago. I believe that. It's it's really crazy. It's so crazy. And um and so he said so often the reason that people do, you know, X, Y, or Z that seems to others like these terrible things, like they're reenacting or they're or there's it's not all reenacting. I mean, there's so many things to it, but just essentially like there's so many reasons if you trace a life why we do what we do. And it doesn't mean it's not wrong, but there's so much more compassion to be had when you understand why somebody may choose the path that they choose. And that doesn't mean there doesn't need to be repentance because there does, but there also needs to be an understanding of how the mind and the body work when there's trauma. Yeah. I, it, there's a difference between context and excuses. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. That is a shorter way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm just, I highly recommend that for everybody. And then Serena, I'm telling you, you've got to go get it. And the other one, I'm just going to throw this out here right now because this is all the stuff I'm in the middle of right now. And so whatever, it's on my mind. There is a book called Healing the Wounded Heart. Oh, I, I think I've read that. Well, so the original one was called The Wounded Heart, but he wrote a follow-up it, 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 like in the 25 years since he'd written it, so it's been 25 years, he wrote Healing the Wounded Heart with all of like the updated stuff. And it's like reading a different book. It's so excellent that I would say if you have the old wounded heart, you still should get Healing the Wounded Heart. Okay. And it's just so excellent. Even if you do not have um, sexual abuse in your past, it's still excellent. And he talks about how normative sexual violation is. So even if you don't have overt abuse, 
you know, access to pornography and sexting and all the stuff, you know, that our culture that so many kids see or are a part of or inflicted by or whatever. Um, it's all part of it. Anyway, it's just phenomenal. And I would say read those two books together because they're just really, really good. Okay. So anyway, moving along, <laughs> somebody wants to know about the whole 1 Corinthians 5 thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that passage of scripture. And the question is, um, is there ever a place you feel that 1 Corinthians 5 is appropriate? So here's the scripture. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I love how <laughs> Paul says that, by the way. <laughs> but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. I'm going to read another passage for some more context in my mind. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Uh, Okay, so... You have somebody in your church and he's saying he's a Christian and he's molesting children and he's being, you know, uh, he's being investigated and everybody knows that, you know, he's going to go to prison or whatever. And he, but he's still in church and he's still like, you know, um, saying that, that there's no, like what I did was wrong. There's no, like, um, I need help. (laughs) There's no, there's, it's all, there's no acknowledgement of uh, how wrong that is. Yeah. I think you need to take some action on that. I think maybe get him away from the kids, like get him, you know? So I, I think that there's a place for it. I just think that you have to be really, really careful because, um, the, the whole goal of that is so that they can come back the whole goal of first Corinthians Corinthians five is so that they can have like a run in with hell and, and be let that do whatever it's going to do. And then so that they can come back. So you have to set it up in a way to where they can come back. Right. You can't just be like, you can't just shun people. You can't just say, you know, like, I don't know how you can scrape together what's left of your life to glorify God. And if you ask for forgiveness, you know, maybe people will believe you, but God won't. Like, I'm quoting that letter. You can't do that because that makes it to where I can never come back. That's good. Yeah. So you just have to be careful. I, I asked Philip Yancey the same thing. I, I tried to interview a bunch of people for this book, people who had more like, you know, clout than I do or what I zero. You have someone who's absolutely nobody. And, and if there's any point in her life where she is not worthy to be talking about like, you know, God and like, uh, and telling people how it, how to handle sinners, that would be me, especially at the point where I'm writing this book. So I interviewed, um, anybody who would give me an ear and Philip Yancey was so nice and so gracious to, um, to let me interview him. And he said that, uh, Paul, he was pretty, 
he was pretty bold and he, he, uh, said a lot of really big things and just us as like typical Christians who aren't Paul (laughs) need to be really careful when we go about trying to expel people and, um, and push them out of our congregations. Because I think that like the church is supposed to be a hospital, you know, it's not supposed to be a, a country club. So if you're not following the rules, then address it, address it properly. Like maybe in, you know, Matthew 18, like bring the, don't say, you know, it's one-on-one like you, like if I were doing something and you were like, Serena, I feel like you're a little off here. Can we talk about it? And then we'd talk about it. And if I didn't listen to you, then you'd bring somebody else that maybe I would respect. And then the two of you would talk to me. And then if I still like, I totally disagree, then maybe bring me up in front of like a group of people and be like, this is, this is the situation and this is what, where we stand and this is where Serena stands. Um, we need, where, what do you guys say? Because we're all wrong. We're all going to be wrong on some level. Let's get more minds on this. And then if the person is still like, sorry, every single one of you are wrong or me, you know, in this analogy, every single one of you are wrong, then, then that, then we, our relationship can't move forward then. So it's kind of a common sense thing, but you have to get more people involved and you have to give the other person a chance to say something because as it's left, nobody else thinks that I'm sorry. They, they see, oh, she did this and then she married him and now, but they don't know my heart. And so maybe, maybe give the person a chance to share their heart. Yeah. And interestingly enough, um, in 1 Corinthians 5, it opens with talking about an incestuous relationship. So it's this idea of something so bad, really. Not, not even tolerated among the pagans. Exactly. Like, don't eat with them. Like, if they're doing this thing and claiming to be a Christian, like, wh- what are you doing? No, this is not okay. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I think... Um, I feel like you answered that. I mean, in my mind, you just have to take great caution, great wisdom, and like you said, get more minds involved. And and what's your heart's posture towards it too, you know? Am I just angry and want to get rid of the person? Or do I really care for them and want them to come back? Yeah. Okay, so I would like to move on to the more tender questions. And what I mean by that is there were women who emailed us after your series aired who just are hurting, who have resonated with you, who have gone through what you've gone through in their own stories. And they have questions for you. So we're going to go into that now. So one woman wrote, she said, I so resonated with your story. I too had an affair. Thank you for speaking openly about it. I, however, can't get past the shame and guilt. Serena, what do you say to her and to the others? How do you get past the shame and the guilt? Uh, it takes it takes time because shame and guilt come from uh, you. You are judging you. Like you haven't forgiven you. It's nobody else. It's not God. It's not, you know, forget about everybody else for a second. It's just you. And you, um, you messed up. And, and there's nothing that you can do to go back and change that. And, but you have to, you have to acknowledge that you're a human and there is context to what 
to what you did. You're, you don't have to give yourself excuses. Nothing that you have gone through, nothing that you were thinking, none of that is going to make it less wrong. But you have to acknowledge that there's context and it's possible and even likely that God is using your failure to bring something up to your attention that He wants to deal with in you now. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think with all that guilt and shame, there's so much, there's the surface guilt and shame over, you know, like what we did and our sin, but then there's usually goes back to so many more things. Yeah. They're, they're weeds. They're weeds that have grown up big enough to where you can identify, oh my gosh, there's a weed in my garden. Where did this come from? This makes me feel ugly. People are going to walk by and see my weed. What am I going to do about my weed? Here's the thing. Figure out what the weed is. Go in there, do some digging, and pull it up. Yeah, and there's going to be tangles when you do. And I feel like when we see the weed, it's an invitation by God to say, I will gently and tenderly do this digging with you. Let's excavate this together because I want to see you walking in freedom and healing. So, Okay, here's the next question. Where were your kids when all this happened and how did they handle it? after it happened? Uh, as far as like the moves, we have moved around. I've moved around my entire life and they've moved around most of theirs. I mean, the last 14 years we've been in the same place. So, uh, but their early lives, um, you know, my oldest was nine and my youngest was two. So, uh, we were a military family, so we moved around a lot. Um, so that wasn't odd at all. They love being on the road with me and they love the experiences. Um, as far as, and she didn't ask this, but it's just another element as far as, um, their dad, their, um, uh, Mark, who I was married to, he wasn't in the picture, uh, for the last two years of the marriage because of the military. Um, and you know, toward the end it was, so things didn't, things weren't really different. The, the thing that was different is they did see more of Justin. But um, when I saw Justin, I, I wasn't with them. It's not like we were having an affair in front of them. And I don't mean that in a, I mean that, you know, there is a little, there is a little sarcasm in there uh, for sure, but we weren't even like hanging out together in front of them. So it wasn't, and, and, you know, keep in mind the affair lasted three weeks. We're not talking about months. We're not talking about a drawn out thing. It's a very short, uh, powerful, uh, thing that happened. So the kids, you know, and it's possible that they're as resilient as I am. And I'm going to go ahead and attribute that to them. And it's possible that God's grace was on them too. I'm going to go ahead and attribute that to them. Um, and, they uh, didn't have much of a relationship with their dad, and they've always liked uh, Justin. So it was an easy, it was an easy transition. You know, and I'm just curious as we're talking about this. How did you? Because you know your your girls are older now. How did you explain it to them? Like, how did you explain when you finally said like? Have you told them your story? Yeah. I mean, they, they, as they, as life events come up, I mean, you're asking in my, um, understanding or in my, I'm taking your question and, and splitting it into two questions. Number one, I told them exactly what happened as, you know, whenever they were old enough to, I explained to them because I had to, um, I had to ask them for forgiveness too. 
you know, like I, I dealt with guilt of ruining their family. And, um, and I kind of, uh, dramatized that a little bit because it was a really safe place to put a lot of emotion. You know, I did this to my kids and, but in reality, the kids were awesome. So I did say, um, to uh, my two kids that were old enough to understand, I said that, um, I made a mistake. I told your daddy that I promised that I would love him. Um, and that I would be his wife until we died. And I broke my promise to him. And so that's, that's how I explained it to them when they were younger. Now that they're older, um, I say it as bluntly as I have said it the entire time. I, I'm, I operate with the uh, belief that you can do something with the truth. You can, the truth is full of tools. Um, you can't do anything with a lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just as, as blunt as they, as I feel appropriate at the time, which we're pretty, we're pretty open in our family. So have, have your older ones read your book? They haven't. And I kind of wish that they would, because I feel like there's a lot of like, um, stuff in there that could help grow their faith, uh, stuff that, you know, I'm their mom, so they don't listen to me. Um, but I think at some point they will. I would like for them to. I've had my oldest daughter. Um, she used to have. Uh, it's an ex boyfriend now, but when she she was younger, she had this boyfriend that she met at church, and he read it. Really? How How old is your oldest daughter? Like, how old are your kids? She's twenty three now. So I'm so surprised she hasn't read it. Like I'm surprised she would be like chomping at the bit to read it. Yeah, I don't know. So I I just don't. Yeah. I, yeah. So I've got a 23 year old, an 18 year old, a 16 year old and a 13 year old. I don't have any babies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter is like, cannot wait to read my book. And I told her, I was like, you cannot read it until you're 14. And it comes out the day before she turns 14. So (laughs) that's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Because I was, it started when I was 14. Like that's how the book opens. Oh, wow. She had to be 14, which also blows my mind because of how different our lives are. No, but um, side note, side note, super quick. But did you watch Leaving Neverland? Oh my gosh, so long ago. I feel like I'd have to watch it again. No, no, no. I'm talking about um, the documentary that just came out about the two kids that Michael Jackson abused. No, I refuse. I can't. I read about it and I don't think I could do it. I, I totally understand. Um, but I'm going to bring up one thing. Um, it's not, it's not a sensitive thing, okay. but, um, these two, uh, men separately in their own life journeys mm-hmm. did not realize that what happened to them was mm-hmm. wrong, mm-hmm. uh, until they had their own kids and their own kids approached yes. their age and they're like, Oh my gosh. Yep. Yes. So I feel like you're kind of like your daughter is approaching the age where you're the... Oh, yeah. And so it has to be hitting you in a, in a different way. Oh, yeah. I've even heard that from other abuse victims. They'll think like, even though something may have happened to them when they were five, they won't realize it until they have their own kids. And then they're like, what? And for me, like, yeah, with my daughter turning 14, I'm like, oh, my gosh. If any, you were a baby. Yeah. Like I look at her and I'm like, no, 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 this is not okay. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, it is quite, um, mind blowing. And I, um, yeah, I think that's pretty typical of people because we want to normalize things in our minds or think it's really not a big deal because that's how we cope. Like, and it isn't until, you know, we have our own kids and we see how tender they are and you're like, 
oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so, right. Yeah. Well, let's, we'll move on from that. Let me just, oh, this was sad. I'll, I'm just going to read it now. And it's kind of rambly, but it, this woman is so dear. She says this, my story has a lot of similarities to yours and it has been the worst time of my life. It was 2009 when we confessed to an affair and I was spinning out of control. My life was decimated. At some point after that, memories and timelines are so foggy. I was searching for someone, anyone that maybe had gone through anything close to what I was going through. I found your blog, Graces for Sinners, and I read as much as I could, and I followed you on Facebook, and I wanted your book, but the financial part of the story is also similar. I could not believe how similar our stories were, and even the timing of my affair was close to yours, which really helped me to know I was not alone. This was happening at the same time for you. I was thankful to be able to read about your life, and your story gave me hope. I thought, if this lady can do the awful thing that I did, and now she can talk about it, and she's okay, and God is using her, maybe that can happen for me too. The words you have used to describe how you felt through all of it are so comforting to me because they are familiar, and I have never put them into words like that. The traumatic childhood and need to blame myself for every aspect of everything, and the shame of walking around after. I was sure at the time that even if I was in a town where no one knew me, they still would know what I had done. People in our small town crossed the street to avoid me. I drove my kids to the next town to go for bike rides and to play at the park. I felt like I deserved all of it. Mm. I felt like I deserved all of it, though. And when you spoke about needing punishment, a price to be paid, and Jesus asking if his payment was enough, that was a big moment for me. Thank you. I have not let go of it all yet, and I desperately want to, but I don't at the same time. If I let go and stop seeing all of the daily consequences and stop apologizing, then people might think that I don't care, that it's no big deal that I did this. I know that if I had a friend and she was like me, I would tell her to stop. But knowing that and doing it for myself are so different. Even writing this email is scary because it feels like letting go a bit. What will it mean for me to be free? What will that look like? So I'm going to stop there. There's more to the email, but that's a pretty important question i think what when will she know that she can be free serena what what does that mean for her and what will it look like i mean as i'm listening to that i i am picturing the park i went to with my kids that i knew nobody else would go to and i'm picturing um and something she didn't say but i guarantee almost that she probably um felt this way too but when i would meet someone new, like another woman or something. And she was like, I could tell that she wanted to be friends. And she was like warming up to me. I would tell her almost immediately, you need to know about me because most people who know about me don't want to be my friend. Mm. Cause the thing is, is like, I'm likable. I'm likable. I know mm. that. So, so I don't want you to be tricked. And it's possible that that letter that I received was you might fool people. No, I don't want to fool people. You need to know about me. And so she probably, you know, I, I can see if she's going to other towns to let her kids play. And if she, but then there also is like the walking around with shame and not wanting to let go of that because, um, because she doesn't want anybody to think that she doesn't know the gravity of her sin. Like that's that right there is, I totally understand that. And I probably don't need to tell her that, um, cause she knows it. She heard it. That's why she's writing. But, uh, so 
so there has to be some sever. You have to, you have to find some kind of a way to sever yourself from the rest of humanity as far as what they think of you determines your worth or what they think of you determines whether you are forgivable or not. Like you are not going to get an okay that is going to matter in any form from people so that you can be free. This is 100% you decide, I'm going to accept this. What Jesus did, I'm going to accept it. And I'm going to, I'm going to smile in public. <laughs> I'm going to make friends and I don't have to tell them my worst. If, it, if people ask, point to Jesus. Like if they, like what makes you, how, how are you able to have a happy life? Like what, aren't you sorry? Aren't you whatever? Yeah, I'm sorry. But I had like the, I, I wish that I'd never, there's a, that flesh part of you where you're talking, where, you know, you were talking about the, the high school kids, like calling you and you're like, do you regret it? Do you whatever? Yeah. On, on the here and now level. Yeah. I never want to do that to somebody. And so she can acknowledge that I never want to do that to somebody or to myself, degrade myself that way. I'm worth more than that. But on the spiritual level, something else took place and she needs to explore what that is mm. because that is the truth that's going to set her free. Yes. Oh, that is so good. Oh, yes, 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 yes. If you are listening, person who wrote this email, <laughs> Everything Serena just said is right on and your worth and value, only Christ gets to tell you who you are. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And there's something so miraculous about believing him and believing that our worth is in him and that he is the only one who has the authority to tell us who we are. There is something so miraculous about that because then it's like we can walk in confidence. And I don't mean a self-righteous confidence. I mean the confidence that Jesus has us covered literally. And so if somebody doesn't like what I say or they don't like me or they look at my sin, I'm still okay because my worth and value are in him alone and that's it. And only he tells me who I am. And it's like walking out of a dark pit and into the sunshine, and it changes everything. A couple, a couple things to to just throw in there, like a couple of like perspective things. When people are really almost violently uh, self righteous against you on whatever, it, the chances that they are struggling with the same exact thing are so high that you have to be able to acknowledge that they're either struggling with the same thing, they're unable to either forgive themselves of the same thing, or they're doing the same thing. Like there is a self-hate that makes them hate. So you have to acknowledge these are not spotless people judging you. These are, these are people who are flawed and who could be could be diverting attention to you to take the attention off of them. That's really good. We all think we're the only one or it's just not true. And the other thing about this woman that really, I don't know, hit a spot for me was she said, you know, now I doubt everything and I don't trust myself to make any decisions. And I feel like that is so from the enemy because he wants us to be confused 
And of course, we're confused because of, you know, all these things. But there is confidence to walk forward in making decisions. And I think once she begins to believe God truly, and I think that's a, I don't, I don't, that, that's layered. I think she'll have the confidence to make decisions again. I really do. Okay, so the last question that I have for you is this one. So another woman who went through um, an affair and it says that her fall from grace, it says, I'll just read this part. My fall from grace was very public and with a member of staff of the church. I thought we were in love. It doesn't make any sense now. Um, the church decided to keep me and my family or to kick me and my family out, but let the pastor and his new wife stay. I guess that's who she had an affair with. And so, uh, so her children and her husband were not allowed to come back. And then she says, my guilt that I feel about my now teenage children and, and the example that I have been, I wonder if it can be saved. So she's really worrying like her kids saw all this and I guess watched the fallout and she has so much guilt about it, um, about her poor example, and she's wondering if that can be saved. Well, as far as like the example for her kids, she um, the biggest message that you can that you can share with your kids is the gospel, and the gospel is uh, forgiveness of sins. Like it's grace. It's um, what was meant for evil was turned into something good. So let God do that within her so that they just like, just like, uh, they witnessed her fall. Let them witness her, her God working something in her life. Let, let them witness that there's, I, there's some insane. It's insane. Uh, when you think about the reality of it, but, um, we think that we, that we could have like not sinned. <laughs> right. We, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and then when we do, we're just like uh, surprised, like, where did that come from? Yeah. And uh, why in the heck do you think Jesus needed to come? Right. If you Absolutely. could get through this life without sinning, he wouldn't have needed to come. Right. We wouldn't need him. And, and, and God gave the people a whole list of things to do. And mm-hmm. it's almost like, set up for, it's almost like set up for failure. It's so intricate. It's so like, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to get this. So now you need a priest. Well, mm-hmm. you're not going to get it. So now you need sacrifices. You know what? Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like, you know, Jesus was an afterthought. It's like, no, he was never an afterthought. The whole old Testament is setting the stage for the need of salvation. And if you read Romans nine, there's, there's a verse in there that said, um, like I, Oh, let me just, let me, uh, read it. Um, while you're finding it, I'll say this. I have a friend and I love it. She says, um, you know, we tend to think that after the Garden of Eden happened, like the fall or whatever, that, that then God had a plan B. But no, Jesus was always plan A. There is no plan B. Right, right. Like we try to attribute meaning. We try to be like, okay, I understand it. There's a plan. Okay, I got it. It's no, you know nothing. You were written. You were created and you were written. Mm. 
and, and you, there's, you know, we, we can get into, and this podcast is not the stage for it, but, uh, there's the whole, is it predestination or is it free will? Is it whatever? Is it whatever? It's all of it. Just live openly and honestly before God, you have choices to make. You're held responsible for the choices. Who's putting the choices in front of you? There, there are layers and layers of, of realities of, of, your eyes being, you know, closed at some moment and then open at others. And, um, and you, you don't get to the, okay, Romans nine, I'm just going to quote it somewhat from memory. Uh, you can, you can read it, but like the stuff that goes through my head is all in the message, uh, format. It's like the clay does not (laughs) like succumb to the pressure of the fingers, like molding it into this ugly vase and turn around and look back at the potter and be like, why did you shape me like this? Like God gets to pick what role you play. Like he, he decided about Rebecca's children, Jacob and Esau. He decided which one he hated and which one he loved. And I don't think when it's talking about, it it says the word hate in there. Like I hated Esau. I loved Jacob. I picked in, and he was talking about Pharaoh, Pharaoh. I picked you as a bit player in my salvation story. I picked you as a bit player in my salvation story. You all, you have to submit to the will of God and accept the role that you played and then find your, your, uh, your role in the salvation story. It is all about Jesus. It's never about you. It's all about, about Jesus. Like what part, what part are you, are you playing? Like uh, the nothing, nothing is left just if you still have a, a heartbeat and you're still breathing in and out, then your story is not over. This is just part of it. So you can't just like stop there. You have to keep going. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that it's all about Jesus and also his love for us. Like, I think because if there weren't us, there'd be no Jesus. And so the story is also about us and his love for us. And that's obvious, but I feel like I just want to say it because sometimes when we say it's all about Jesus, we forget that like he didn't need the Bible for himself. Like he wrote it for us so that we would see his love for us and, and, and that unfolding story. And so, um, I think anyway, I've, I've heard the extreme of it. And I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Cause like when you, uh, uh, God is love and the biggest expression of love is laying your life down for your friends. So he created us to be able to express himself. Mm, yes. Yes. It's so great. And also the, that same woman who asked about, um, you know, I wonder if her story or if everything can be redeemed. Well, yes, everything can be redeemed. There's always resurrection. That's why we have Easter. Um, and she she had said, I am now wondering if there could be a plan for me. And emphatically, yes, <laughs> Jesus is always about resurrection. So is there a plan for you? Can he use your story? Absolutely. And he is and he will if you're tender and you submit to him. So absolutely. Um, Serena, thank you so much for coming on again and, and doing these questions. And I just, I so appreciate you and your vulnerability to continue to share. And it's, it's so interesting because even though the wound has been on the mend, in some sense, we let people dig their finger in the wound and, uh, and we keep being willing to let it be reopened. 
this metaphor is going to go downhill, <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's like, I'm just showing, I'm showing my scars, you know, I'm showing yeah. my scars because they tell a story yeah. and, uh, that's right. It's a, it's a, it's, if you stick around long enough, it's a really good story. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I think the more we tell it, the more glory God gets. So I don't think it's, I don't know. I, I just often think like, goodness, how many times am I going to tell my story or whatever? And I think, well, every time I do, I get to give God glory because he wove a beautiful story and I can, I can delight in his story, even though there were hard things just like you. So anyway, Serena, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.